Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Hey, welcome back to Theology Unplugged. It is Saturday. We are excited to be talking about problem passages of the Bible. We've been going through a bunch of them. Sam Storms is at the table today, pastor at Bridgeway Church. J.J. Side, another pastor, Bridgeway Church. I'm Tim Kimberly. I'm a pastor at Frontline Church here in the metro, and we are diving into passages in the Bible that make us really pause, many times make us put on our big boy pants, <laughs> and many times make us really think, okay, I know God could have said this very smoothly in a way that I could have just read really fast and not stopped and thought about it, but he purposely wrote it in a way that's concentrated, that makes me hit pause, that makes me sit back, look up in the sky and pray and say, God, what, what are you communicating here? Matthew 24, verse 36 is one of these verses that every Christian should really pause and chew on whenever we come to this verse. It says, uh, Jesus himself is speaking here and says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows uh, the hour of, of his return. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, here's the kicker, nor the Son, but the Father only. All right, so that's our verse. That's our verse that we're going to dissect. So the problem should be obvious, but I'll go ahead and speak into it, which uh, most people would bring up the problem as, and if you guys feel that the problem needs to be nuanced, but the problem as, how can Jesus as God, fully God, who all of the attributes that are true of the Father are true of the Son, in him the fullness of deity dwell everything that is god about god the father is true about god the son how can god being jesus the second person of the trinity how can he who is all-knowing and eternal and existing outside of time and knows everything knows things to the point of hey go fishing and when you catch a fish you'll open up its mouth and there'll be some money and it happens. He has such control of time and space and the universe, but then he says, I have no idea when I'm coming back. How, how can our Jesus be that way? How can he not know when he's coming back and still be God? Tim, and, you're supposed to make this easy on us. You just <laughs> complicated this yeah, beyond well, I, imagination. Because I didn't want to give you the opportunity to spin your way out of it. I want to. I want you to feel. I want you to start sweating in your chair as you are are chewing through this. Well, and to give our listeners some background, if they're not aware, you know, if you've ever stood up in a church and recited a creed. One of the reasons that creed was created in the early church was to answer some of these questions because mm -hmm. when you talk about Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, there's about a billion ways to get that wrong and mm -hmm. a, one way to get it right. And so the church spent hundreds of years hammering out what it didn't mean for Jesus to be 100% God and 100% man. It, it isn't like 
adding a drop of ink to water. So now you have inky water where mm-hmm. he's like a third thing now, a little bit of man, a little bit of God swirled up in a glass. It's not like God came down and put on a skin suit, yes. but he's not really one person. It's not that God, a person and man, a person are jammed together inside someone's skull like he's schizophrenic. It's none of these things. He's 100% God, 100% man, one person, two natures. So do all three of this of us at this table hold to that? in light of this passage, that we believe that Jesus is completely God and completely man. Yeah, but we need to parse that out but a little y- bit. But you threw a we butt just, in no, there? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah and we're going to find out why. By okay. the way, let, let's make sure we're also clear on one other thing. And I don't know, maybe you guys would disagree with me on this. I don't think you will. We're talking about what Jesus knew or did not know during the time of his incarnation on the earth when he was walking the soil of this globe. Okay. The point being, Jesus now exalted to the right hand of the Father knows the day and the hour of his second coming. Would we agree with that? We don't think yes. that, the, that the, it, and again, some people might even be offended when I use the word ignorance. But we're assuming here, I think, that the quote-unquote ignorance of Jesus concerning the time of his second coming uh, was only true during the time of his humiliation upon this earth, but that he obviously now fully knows um, and has yeah. access to to, to, to knowledge uh, as God with regard to the second coming of Jesus. Are we in agreement on that point? Uh, well, I would say yes, but I would say I can't prove that biblically from Scripture. I would say that I believe that to be true as a safe deduction of what I know to be true of Jesus in heaven. Yeah, a, a lot of that would have to, we'd have to delve into another topic, and that is when Christ was raised and yeah. glorified and exalted, was there a change in the uh, relationship that he sustained to uh, divine omniscience? In mm-hmm. other words, uh, and of course, this throws us back. We've got to talk about the incarnation. We've yeah. got to talk about what happened when God became you know, well, the word became flesh. And Folks, we've just us. decided this is going to be a nine-week series. That's right. <laughs> so here's one thing that our listeners should have as background. Philippians 2, there's a word here in most English translations that may be a little bit unhelpful. And it's a word that, uh, and Sam, you can get, and Tim, you can get more background on this, but it's led to a heresy, which I used to believe, by the way, out of ignorance. But uh, have this mind among yourselves, Philippians 2, 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, and here's the word, he emptied himself. And I would argue that's probably not necessarily the best English word for what's being described there. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So here's the incarnation. And in some sense, he did something. Something happened. He Mm -hmm. emptied himself. What does that mean? Does that mean that when Jesus says this in our passage that we read that he doesn't know, is it because he laid aside his omniscience for a while and then sort of picked it back up again when he ascended into heaven? Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, this, this is perhaps the single most important passage in the New Testament about the person of Christ. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I do not think he's saying that God the Son, second person of the Trinity, divested himself of his divine attributes. There was a movement, uh, you referred to it, J.J., uh, that was heretical, uh, really birthed in the 19th century, which in, in effect argued that the second person of Godhead committed suicide, divine suicide. He ceased to be divine. He ceased to exist as God. And that was necessary in order for him to be fully and completely human. And the church has consistently rejected that. We, yeah. we, we simply do not believe that's the case. We believe that, that when, when, if you had lived on this earth in the 28th 
uh, AD and you had bumped into Jesus of Nazareth, uh, that the one you bumped into was fully God. Now, he wouldn't have appeared fully God. He, mm-hmm. he might even have bruised his arm if you bumped into him too hard. Or if you stepped on his toe, he might have yelled, ouch. Um, or if you uh, came around the corner and he didn't see you coming and you yelled, he might have been scared and jumped back in fright. He was fully human, but at the same time, he was fully God. And the question is, how can that be? Now, if yeah. people are asking, what does that got to do with Matthew 24? The answer is everything. Yeah, and I'm with you there too. Yeah, and can I add, uh, we keep zooming out a little bit, but I want to zoom out one more time too. Uh, I think just in human nature, the reason, I'm looking at a pen right now, and that pen is not blowing my mind. The pen is not surprising me. The pen is not making me scratch my head because I'm incredibly familiar with pens. You know, I just see a pen and I don't even, I'm looking at four pens actually now, and I'm not being moved at all by the pens uh, because I see them all over the place. Now, if I went home after this broadcast and in my backyard, there was an elephant that was purple and it was hovering over the ground because it had on butterfly wings, I would be blown away because I've never seen one of those before. You would be taken away I and would wrapped be. in a straitjacket and locked securely in a room from which you would have no hope of escape. I, I've been there, brother. <laughs> I've been there. Um, so, But one of the things I do want to say, too, is what we have to realize is we are now in a territory where we, ab- we are observing one of a kind. We are observing something that we are not familiar with, something our minds have never comprehended because we have never seen one before. So uh, I've never seen that elephant other than in my weird state of mind. But, um, but when I gaze at Jesus, I should be surprised that I'm, I'm gazing on something that there's only one of a kind, there will only ever be one of a kind, and it should be hard for our minds to get around it. So I think if we just start there, first of all, and say, we're not dealing with a, a pile of clay, and we're trying to describe a pile of clay, and it's like, man, how should we describe this, and how do we fit this verse? But we're gazing at something that's, that's very complex, and that's a great thing because we have a complex universe. So the creator of our complex universe is probably more complex than the complex universe that he created. That's so, right. So we shouldn't yeah, be surprised. That was, that was when we, yeah. <laughs> so how many times can I say complex? Um, so, but we shouldn't be surprised, though, that this passage does make us uh, itch our heads. We're well, talking the Trinity and the Incarnation are two things that have an element of mystery to them. As you right. said, they're both one of a kind. God becoming a man is the most astonishing thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity that's right. and ever will happen. And so we're going to get closer and closer to the center of understanding it by slapping down all the things that's not. Yeah. We're never going to get to a point where we're able to diagram it fully and explain how it works. Yeah. So, in light of that, let's come back to your passage, J.J. What did Paul mean when he said that God the Son, who existed in the form of God and was equal with God, emptied himself? And I think the answer is found in what follows in this passage. So if our listeners have their Bibles in front of them, they can look at it later. Notice what he says. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In other words, the emptying wasn't a divesting himself of something that he already had. It was by taking something to himself new that before he didn't have. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form, and he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. So the point here is that and again, I, I don't like the translation, he emptied himself either. I think it's good to, we might render it, he made himself of no reputation by taking to himself human nature. 
So God the Son didn't lose any divine attributes. He didn't cease to be loving. He didn't cease to be omnipotent. He didn't cease to be authoritative and just. But he did enter into a form of existence by taking an entirely new nature. And then I believe, and this is my own theology here, he voluntarily suspended the exercise of certain divine attributes that would be inconsistent with living as genuinely human. So it's not as if Jesus didn't have knowledge of all things as God incarnate, but during the time of his humiliation, he willingly, voluntarily suspended the exercise of his omniscience, the exercise of his omnipotence, and even of his omnipresence in order that he could live a fully genuine human life. Yeah. Yeah. And this would take us into another whole 25-minute broadcast, so I only want to open the door and then shut it again. But this is a reason why, when there's all these wonderful passages in Hebrews and other places that say that he's able to fully sympathize with our weaknesses, there's a part mm-hmm. of our brain that says, oh, come on, he was a cheater. You know, he just pressed his God button, and then he was able to get through every temptation. He was able to endure every form of suffering. And so what Sam has hinted at is that here was Jesus in his humanity, not divesting himself of any of his divinity, yet living authentically as a human in full reliance on and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And once you hear that and you go looking for it in the Gospels, you'll see it constantly. Everywhere. Jesus, in the Everywhere. power Everywhere. of the Holy Spirit, one yeah. in the wilderness. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, healed this person and resisted this temptation. So he did that not because he had to, but because he chose to in order to leave us, yeah. right, in a path that we could follow and to fully identify with us. He was 100% a man. He wasn't pretending to be a man or playing at being a man. Ma- yeah. Matthew 12, it says... He says, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was full of the Spirit. So how did Jesus perform his miracles? How did he have the insight that he did into, in particular situations? Through the work of the Holy Spirit operating through him as he lived a generally human life. Now, that all being said, I would like to suggest that we should be no more surprised by Matthew 24, 36 and the ignorance of the Son regarding the time of his second coming than we are by his statement, I thirst. Mm -hmm. We should be no more surprised by it than the fact that in John 4, Jesus was tired and he had to pause at the well to drink water or that Jesus slept at night. You know, Jesus didn't just lie there and close his eyes and pretend and say, these guys think I'm sleeping because I'm exhausted. Instead, I'm I'm, God. Yeah, I've answered 59,000 prayers in the last two seconds. Uh, Our Lord lived life as a human being. And therefore, that he was not informed by the Father through the Spirit of the time of the second coming really is no greater mystery than the fact that they were able to nail the Son of God to a cross That's right. and pierce his hands and his feet with, with these spikes and that yeah. he bled and that he got hungry yeah. and that he belched after dinner. And he wept. Yes, and that he wept. So this is part and parcel of living in a state of humiliation as a human being for the sake of, of the redemption of his people. Yeah, and I think, Sam, what you said at the end, too, for the redemption of his people, don't think that as that is true uh, corporately. It's true in community, but it's true personally, too. 
And so this is not, uh, theology should never be kept on the theological bookshelf and not find its way into being kindling and fuel for your heart. And I think this passage should force us to fall on our knees and throw our arms up and worship our Jesus because, and one of the ways that Michael and I teach this at the Credo House often is that he doesn't know the second time of his coming because you don't know the second time, the second, the time of, the, of his second coming. So JJ, if if uh, like a good example too is when Jesus is led out into the desert to be tempted and he's being tempted by Satan. These are real temptations and Satan just says, hey, just make make some bread. I mean, come on, you, you made this whole thing. Just turn this rock into bread. And he's like, no, that's not the way scripture happens. That's not the way it plays out. And what I would say is JJ can't do that. And I'm here for JJ. And what Jesus showed us is how we can live a Christian life. And dependence on the Holy Spirit, empowered Total, by the Holy Spirit. Exactly. And so even, so what's fascinating to me is, so Jesus made a commitment. He's fully God. We know from scripture he is fully God because they're worshiping as God. He's killed for saying that he's God. So he's not saying like, oh yeah, I was God and then I'll be God again in three years. But he is God and he's very clear all over scripture that he's God. But it's clear all over scripture too, though, that he's here for JJ, for Sam, for me. He's here for you. And and I think like that should give us devotion when he's hungry He's hungry because he's here for you, and he's living the human life and we the human to, experience. We need yeah. to understand that he had different goals in his two comings, the one that, yeah. that has happened and the one that will happen. He came in humility. He came lowly. He came as a servant in his first coming, and he said, I'm here to do whatever I see my father doing. I'm not yeah. here to do things of my own volition, but I'm here to obey his orders and humble myself. When he comes again, he comes as a conquering king, mm-hmm. riding on a horse to exercise his authority and institute justice. And so there's a sense in which the fullness of who he is is split between those two comings and, and the reasons that he came and the reasons that he will come again. When Jesus performed miracles then, we would be in agreement that he didn't do that out of his own divinity. He did that as a man depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that correct? And so we could potentially do those same miracles potentially if the Holy Spirit uh, saw fit to do them through us too because God, because Jesus was relying on him, not on himself. Well, and yeah. some of our leaders are uh, leaders. Some of our listeners are panicking right now because they think that by by emphasizing his humanity, we're somehow going to lose his divinity in the mm-hmm. process. You know, that the mystery remains that he's simultaneously upholding the universe by the word of his power while he says from the cross, I thirst. Yeah. Those things are true at the same time and how they're connected is mysterious, but he, we don't diminish any of his authority, omniscience, and power as God mm-hmm. in order to validate his experience of true humanity. And, and, and now let's, ahead, be, let's be real clear about this, too. I'm just sitting there thinking and just listening to you guys. When we talk about our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, obviously we say they are equal in power, equal in glory, equally divine. Well, obviously there's not a, a situation in which one person of the Godhead knows something that the other doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in terms of just the triune nature of God, yeah. we know that God the Son, the second person of the, tr- uh, of the Trinity, knows when they together have ordained the second coming to occur. But the the incarnate Christ, the man Christ Jesus during the time of his humiliation on this earth did not know. Now here's a question, I raised this earlier. Does he now know? Mm -hmm. And the answer would seem to be, well sure he does because obviously after his resurrection, 
he was no longer, it was no longer necessary for him to be dependent upon the Spirit. He would have drawn fully from his divine nature. And then we have this really amazing passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, which says that while he was instructing his, his apostles after the resurrection, he was doing it through the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's stunning. After yeah. the resurrection, he's still drawing upon the power of the Spirit to instruct mm. the apostles. And that just raises all sorts of new questions. Mind blown. <laughs> By the way, let me just throw this in. Just This is a funny thing. Um, you know, back to this issue of, well, this passage obviously means that nobody can know when the second coming will occur. Well, Except for Harold Camping. Harold Camping has a way around it. Did you know that? No. Harold Camping... Bless his soul. He's he passed away recently. Mm. We're not here to to besmirch a man's no. reputation, but Harold Camping actually argued that the text should read as follows. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son of perdition, but mm. the Father only. And his argument is that the son there should not be capitalized in our English Bibles. That it's a reference to Satan. Because, you know, he is called son of perdition. Or is mm-hmm. that, maybe it's Judas that's called the son of perdition. I can't even remember right now. But Being he, influenced by Satan. Though, yeah, so. but he argues that this is a reference to the son of perdition, mm-hmm. even though there's nothing in the text to suggest that. And therefore, Jesus probably did know. And also, there's one other thing that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very weak manuscript tradition, but there are some Greek manuscripts that omit the phrase, nor the son. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some scribe in, you know, there was a theology unplugged in the second or <laughs> third or fourth century somewhere in the Byzantine Empire. And one of the guys said, I don't like this. That's right. And he made a little emendation in the manuscript to omit the phrase nor the sun. Which is wonderful because it shows that for 2,000 years we've been feeling the weight of this passage and, and it astonishes us. Yeah. It'd be hard to get away father only, though. You'd have to find a way to get around. Is that monogenes? Maybe is the Greek word there for only. But, um, Okay, so here is an interesting road to go down for just a few minutes, is the idea of can Jesus be great as a man? And I'm thinking of Islam. So Islam, with the statement that God is great, Allahu Akbar, that, that they have been adamant that Jesus cannot be God because, or could, could, Jesus could not be God, he, he could only be a man because God as man would never be great. God has to be a faraway God uh, that that means he's great. So Allahu Akbar, would, uh, a Muslim would say, no, this just points to the idea that Jesus is not great, that he is a prophet, but he is not God. And, and you guys should look at this verse and you'll see that we as Muslims are right. You know, all I know to say to that is, I, is to reference what I think is the, most, the single most amazing passage in the whole Bible. Mm. For me, it's okay. John 1.14. And the word became flesh Mm. and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So you say, can a man be great? Can a man be God? I mean, think about the implications. The word, this glorious word referred to in John 1.1, became flesh. He didn't pretend, as as J.J. said, he didn't put on a... Uh, a human costume like we uh, dress up on on Halloween, he quite literally became flesh without ceasing to be the Word. Yeah, He's Word in flesh. And he dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Notice mm-hmm. that the glory of God is not diminished by the fact that he is now incarnate in human flesh. Yeah. We beheld his glory. He's full of grace and truth. 
even though this infinite, eternal word, God the Son, is now walking around in skin and bones with a kidney and uh, kidneys and spleen and, uh, and, and a guy who sweats and, and uh, goes through puberty as yeah. he's developing, we still behold his glory. He's glorious. He's full of grace and truth. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. You know, when I think of Buddhism, uh, the teaching is, is, that, is that suffering isn't real. And in Islam, the teaching is, is that Allahu Akbar, God is great, would be far away. And I think the, the beauty and the majesty and the scandal of what we've been talking about is that suffering is real, pain is real, and Jesus is really great. He, he, you can truly uh, say in Arabic, Allahu Akbar, as it relates to Jesus, because he, suffering is real, he is near. And what, what I love devotionally is that these passages make me love Jesus more, make me worship him more because of all that he did to rescue our souls for, for, for him and for his glory. Uh, he, he spanned the cosmos just to rescue our souls. JJ, you've got the last word, brother. I don't think Christians realize, I know I didn't for many years, that in Philippians 2, that was so momentous what Jesus did, the second person of the Trinity, emptying himself by addition, by taking on mm. flesh. That's good. It was it's subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. <laughs> he emptied himself, he made himself of no account, and he did it irreversibly. Mm. You know, in eternity, when we open our eyes up on the other side of eternity and we look him in the face and we know even as we're known, as John says in 1 John, we will behold a man with a body, a glorified body. We don't know what that looks like, but it's a real body. With nail prints in his hands. And he'll, and he'll bear the scars of his penal substitutionary atoning death mm. for our sin for the rest of eternity. And that was a decision he made that was irreversible and he did it in the full knowledge of what he was embracing. He was gonna become the God-man. Praise be to God. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha. In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.